I'm Dave Rubin, and joining me on the Rubin Report today are two U.S. combat veterans, one a former member of the U.S. Congress and one a former MMA champion, Colonel Alan West and Chad Robichaud. Welcome to the Rubin Report. Thanks. Thanks for having us on. Thank you, Dave. I am glad to have you guys here because, as I mentioned to you right before we started, we haven't done enough generally on military and veterans issues and, and all of those things. So we're going to dive into all that, talk about your nonprofit and why you guys are here together and all of those good things. Uh, but first off, what made each of you want to go into the military? Colonel, I'll start with you. Well, for me, it was a family tradition. Uh, you know, we just celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day when my father uh, fought in World War II. He was a corporal in the United States Army. He uh, initially started in North Africa, Sicily, Italy, and uh, that's where he was wounded, uh, running supply dispatches. My older brother was a Marine infantryman in Vietnam, wounded at Khe Sanh. And at the age of 15, my dad challenged me to be the first officer in our family. So uh, I went through high school junior ROTC in Atlanta. What did 15-year-old Alan West think about that? 15-year-old Alan West wanted to, you know, follow his dad's lead. And I think that that is why positive, strong role models, male role models, are so important in the black community. Because my dad gave me a direction and a, and a goal and objective. So on 31 July 1982 at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, he was on my right shoulder, my mom was on my left shoulder, and they pinned second lieutenant bars on me. And now today, his uh, grandson, dad passed in 1986, but his grandson is a major wow. in the United States Army. So that's four generations. And how many years did you serve? 22. Long time, yeah. Chad, what about you? Well, uh, Three-generation Marine Corps family. My father served as a combat Marine in Vietnam as an infantryman. And uh, my son uh, is now in Afghanistan right now, uh, part of 3rd Anglico, uh, supporting the Georgians in Afghanistan. So, uh, And I was a Marine as well with eight deployments to Afghanistan. So I, I uh, my father being a Marine, uh, probably suffered with a lot of things that we help our warriors with at our foundation. And he, he came home, he was an angry guy, a lot of alcohol and physical abuse. And so I grew up in a very dysfunctional home. I had a brother that was a year older than me, and when we were about 13 to 14 years old, we decided we were going to join the military to escape that life. And so we started running and swimming and, and teamed up to prepare for that kind of that goal in life. And uh, unfortunately, about a year after that, uh, my brother was shot and killed. And so it, it put me in a very, my, what I had left of the family dissolved. It put me in an extreme isolation. And in that isolation, I just continued to focus towards that goal of being in the military. And uh, when I was 17 years old, I met a Marine Corps recruiter named Staff Sergeant Brown, who uh, I hadn't even, I wasn't going to graduate high school. Um, live, I was living on my own by that time. And uh, I wanted to be in some type of special operations, and I expressed to him, you know, what I wanted to do. And he told me about being a reconnaissance Marine, so I set my sights on that. And, uh, and so the Marine Corps, for me, joining at 17 years old, was a clean slate of life, a brand new chance. And uh, I, at that young age, I, I was aware enough to embrace it. And it's been an amazing part of my life. Yeah, what do you think that, regular people that don't serve, who love America. You can see I've got a giant American flag in the control room. We've got another one right over there. We've got the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence in there. Uh, what do you think that regular Americans should know about you guys, people that serve that maybe we don't know? Well, one, I don't, I don't think people uh, often realize how special it is for someone that serves in the military. Uh, currently, we only have a half a percent, 0.5 percent of our population in the United States serves in the military, and uh, you know stands in the gap not just to protect the the freedoms that we have in America, but to protect the interests of others around the world and stand up for people that can't stand up for themselves. Uh, that's one of the things I always loved about the military, uh, and uh, I think people don't understand is the fact that we do uh, serve as strength for the, the world, not just our nation. 
and are able to protect you know these people around the world that don't have the ability to defend themselves. Yeah, we're going to get into some of the the policy parts of that. What do you think we should know about you guys that maybe we don't? I think the most important thing, and you know, my Christian faith is very strong in my life. Uh, when you go to John chapter 15, verse 13, where it says that no greater love has another man that he would lay down his life for another. Uh, and then also in Isaiah 6 and 8, when Isaiah is there with the host of the Lord and, and they're saying, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. You have to understand that the freedoms and liberties that we have here in the United States of America is that we, because we consistently raise generations of these young men and women that are going to continue to give that last full measure of devotion. And that's why Abraham Lincoln talked about the increased devotion that a nation should have for those in the Gettysburg Address. And so when people come up and say, thank you for your service, I mean, that's all fine and well. But I think the real tribute and the real honor to people like Chad, myself, and all the generations that have uh, worn the uniform is we want you to understand why we took an oath to support and defend the Constitution. This episode of The Rubin Report comes to you with support from our friends over at Bravo Company Manufacturing. In the Second Amendment, the Founding Fathers guaranteed an individual the right to protect themselves. Owning a rifle is an awesome responsibility, and building rifles is no different. Started in a garage by a Marine veteran more than two decades ago, Bravo Company Manufacturing, or BCM for short, builds a professional-grade product which is built to combat standards. This is because BCM believes that the same level of protection should be provided to every American, regardless if they're a private citizen or a professional. Bravo Company Manufacturing is not a sporting arms company. They design, engineer, and manufacture life-saving equipment. BCM assumes that when a rifle leaves their shop, it'll be used in a life-or-death situation by a responsible citizen, law enforcement officer, or a soldier overseas, so quality is of utmost value to them. Every component of a BCM rifle is hand-assembled and tested by Americans in Heartland, Wisconsin to a life-saving standard. BCM has always put people before products. They build their products because they feel it's their moral responsibility as Americans to provide tools that will not fail the end user when it's not just a paper target, but someone coming to do them harm. Because of this, BCM knows that making reliable, life-saving tools is only half the story. They also work with leading instructors of marksmanship from top levels of America's special operations forces. To learn more about Bravo Company Manufacturing, head on over to bravocompanymfg.com where you can discover more about their products, special offers, and upcoming news. That's bravocompanymfg.com. Need more convincing? Find out even more about BCM and the awesome people who make their products at youtube.com slash bravocompanyusa. Now back to the show. Do you guys think that there is a little rebirth of that happening right now because it's not a coincidence that I put the flag there in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. I don't think it's a coincidence that as people have watched me sort of evolve politically and, and talk about these things and pride in the country and those things, I don't mean blind pride. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, really understanding where we came from and where we're going. I do see a rebirth of that now. Are, are you seeing that? I, I am. And uh, I said this just, just recently at a speaking event. I think when people turn on the news, they think, you know, the country's lost its way. But that's just, I think there's a loud and voice, and the loud few. When I go around the country and speak about the work that we do and, and supporting our warriors, I, I get to witness firsthand a, a grateful nation of Americans who are patriots. They love their warriors, they love their country, and they, and they, um, and they would 
kind of have the same views that you have that you know, it's a special place and uh, and it's, it's a sacred place that we need to uphold the values that we have in this nation. Yeah, I know you have no love lost for the <laughs> mainstream media, but do you think that it partially is that that they've sort of gone so bananas in well, in making it seem that America is so evil and we're patriarchal and racist and all all yeah. these ridiculous things that eventually you push good people to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. No, we're not, and that's actually good. No, and, and it is. I, I don't think that, you know, it was so interesting you and I were talking off camera how you said five or six years ago you thought I was a nut. I, I, now, I, I thought you were the bad guy, man. <laughs> and, and now we're sitting here having a great conversation. Yeah. And I think all of us, if we really understand the objective truths about this country, we come to realize what America really is. It's a beacon of liberty, freedom, and democracy. That's why people come here. When I lived in South Florida, I never saw anyone get on a boat to go to Cuba. I saw the, the <laughs> right, opposite. Right. No one is leaving. They Guatemala. don't leave. They, they, don't, leave. they don't leave Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras to go to Venezuela. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is a very simple thing. So yeah. when you have someone like a Governor Cuomo that stands up and says, ah, you know, America has never been great. Tell that to those men who 75 years ago landed on those beaches in Normandy and jumped in, you know, the night prior. Tell that to your dad and my older brother who fought in those jungles in Vietnam. Tell that to my dad. Go to his, you know, final resting spot. A man that fought for this country when this country did not afford him all those rights and privileges it did others, mm -hmm. yet he wanted his son to still be an officer in that exact same army. That's America. That's where it's all about, Dave. So how do you balance that? which I think we obviously all agree right. with, with that also we do make mistakes, also we're flawed, also mm -hmm. depending on political leadership, there might be times when you're really all yeah. gung-ho about all of our policies and sometimes you're not. Yeah, I mean, I think as, as a nation we are gonna, we, we are, a, a, like you said, you're not, you don't have people leaving to go to Cuba. I mean, we have a line from Guatemala to, to San Diego for people to come here, and they're coming right. here for a reason. It's not just for free health care and, and college. They're coming here because of the op this land of opportunity. It still is, and, 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 I, and I pray it always will, it will be. But uh, we're not going to do things right all the time. We're not going to have leaders that are always going to make the right decisions. But I, I believe uh, America as an institution, uh, this, you know, great, the great experiment of America mm -hmm. is something that still stands true, and, uh, and it's the reason why you know, the world looks, to, looks towards us. And America as a, as a nation and as a military, the strength of, a, of that makes the world a better place. What do you think um, it is fundamentally about the military that allows it to keep America strong despite having mm -hmm. administrations that can wildly go in different directions. I mean, yeah. just look mm -hmm. at the last two. The, oh, sure. the policies sure. no of Barack Obama it. versus the policies of yeah. Donald Trump are vastly different, but we haven't had a coup, no. you know? The military is still functioning, still doing its yep. job. What, what is, where does that strength come from? Well, if you go and you read the Constitution, you know, the Founding Fathers talked about moving toward a more perfect union. So we're not a perfect country, but we understand that uh, we have a foundation, we have a fundamental you know, values, we have a rule of law that enables us to move in that direction. That's how we continue to amend ourselves. And that's the interesting thing about our military, Dave, is that we don't take an oath to a political party. We don't right. take an oath to a person. Mm -hmm. We take an oath to that document that you know, I'm carrying right here that unifies us as, as a nation. That, that's our rule of law, that's our standard. And so our military is focused on that and nothing more. Uh, and we are the guardians of the republic. That's, that's how we really see ourselves. And it's important that our country sees us that way also. So no, we're not gonna go in and throw a coup uh, because one administration to the others. But you know, maybe there are gonna be some orders that are not exactly ethical 
that we will stand up and challenge. And that's why we have these generals, and that's what we expect them to do uh, as the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But uh, we, we, we take that oath to the Constitution, and I think that's important. So let's talk a little bit about your service specifically. So you served in Afghanistan, and you served in Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Afghanistan seems to me to be the weirdest military adventure or war, whatever you want to call it at this point, because it's the longest ongoing war that we've ever had in the United ever, States. Yes. It's still going on now. People seem to be very confused as to why we went in the first place, why are we still there? Sort of break that down. Well, I, th I think that I feel a lot clearer uh, more clear about Afghanistan, uh, why we went there. I mean, great September September 11th. You know, uh, planes were flown into World Trade Center, uh, and it was done so by the Taliban. And we had a we had an obligation to go and, and hunt down Osama bin Laden and the Taliban that, that were responsible for it. And part of that meant to uh, align with the North Alliance, which would have been a uh, uh, Masood would have been the leader of the North Alliance, which. Uh, bin Laden cleverly killed at the same time, uh, assassinated at the same time. And so as we went into Afghanistan, we had to, you know, not just go after one person, but we had to, had to go the the infiltration of the out of Afghanistan by the Taliban occupation of that. And so going after um, going after the Taliban meant the occup occupying of Afghanistan, not to overtake the country, but to eradicate the Taliban. And, that, and obviously that's uh, still going on 20 years later. My, I would have never thought after eight deployments there, my son would yeah. be there uh, fighting the Taliban right so, now. So is that, a, is that a failure of our policy? Is there an inconsistency between administrations there? Yeah. What, what do you think that is? Well, I mean, you get to think uh, eight years, uh, eight, for eight years of doing this, of, of that 20 years, uh, the military was completely handcuffed. Mm -hmm. um, they were, they were, they were cut, cut uh, resources, manpower, um, and, and rules of engagement that were not favorable to our troops. And, and at, so this, at the you're cost talking about the Obama lives, years. I'm talking right. about the Obama administration at the cost of, of many American lives, and, uh, and, and I, I, I truly believe that um, the administration is responsible for that. Um, and luckily now the rules of engagement have uh, changed, and uh, we're able to go after and more offensively go after the Taliban, and I think we're having a more effective footprint there. However, I think Americans should understand that we're not there as a in the same capacity we was in the early days. Um, we're there to support the ANA, the Afghan National Army. We're there to support um, other allied forces, such as my son right now is assigned to the Georgians, uh, who are out doing combat patrols and presence patrols. So we're there in more of a support and advise capacity right now. Yeah. And, and I, I think, um, even with my son here, I loved him to come home, but I think we belong there in that capacity to support, advise, and help, uh, help foreign nations. Because these nations like the ANA, they can't, if we left the ANA, uh, Afghan National Army, to do this themselves, they would, they would fail. So that actually is a good segue to talking about Iraq, because mm -hmm. one of the things that happened in Iraq, you served in, in Desert Storm, mm -hmm. um, but after this last Iraq war, mm -hmm. um, you know, there was this big debate, when do we, when do we leave? Mm -hmm. And basically Obama took us out with just announcing the day we're going, and they were having free and fair elections. There was yes. actually the beginnings of a democracy there. Now, you could argue that we maybe should have never been there in the first place. You yeah. could argue that we had to leave no matter what, yeah. you could, all those things. But democracy was spreading, and, and mm -hmm. then we left, and now it's gotten much worse. Yes. Um, so actually, first, why, why don't you talk about Desert Storm, just in general? Because that's, that's the forgotten one now, because people only yeah. think about this, this second Iraq war. You know, it's, it's incredible that that has happened, and uh, one of the committees I sit on is to uh, establish a national Desert Storm uh, War Memorial in Washington, D.C., And so uh, because it has been forgotten. But it was an important bridge from us coming from Vietnam to, once again, reestablish that respect and regard for our military. But there will never be another Desert Storm. No one is ever going to take on the United States of America in a wide 
wide open desert of conventional warfare. Uh, you know, two of the best training facilities for our military is right here in California, Two Niner Palms, and then also the National Training Center. We are experts in open desert warfare, and uh, the Iraqi army learned that in 96 short hours. Hmm. But the real thing was that we built a coalition. Uh, we, uh, you know, held to the objective that we were going in under the United Nations mandate it was to get the Iraqis out of Kuwait. But what you have seen metastasized now is a world that understands you don't fight the United States of America you know, up front, face to face. Now you have this ideological war against Islamic jihadism. They don't wear uniforms. They don't openly declare themselves. They are non-state, non-uniform belligerents. And that's what, you know, Chad had to deal with in Afghanistan. And even after I retired, I was in Afghanistan for two and a half years as a civilian military advisor down in Kandahar. Uh, we have to, we have not done a good job of understanding this modern battlefield, understanding this enemy that we're facing. Even Russia, you know, when they went into the Crimea, they didn't go in as the Russian military. Mm -hmm. They went as a paramilitary force, and you see what they're doing in Ukraine. Uh, China, when you look at what they're doing all over the globe, uh, they do say that this is our strategy, the one belt, one road, but they are covertly doing things that we don't understand. China is in Venezuela, as a matter of fact. Iran, the number one state sponsor of Islamic terrorism in the world, but, you know, Hezbollah is not out there really, you know, declaring a, a, mm -hmm. their estate or what have you, and ISIS. Well, they are flying their flags. In well, they're flying a flag, but, yeah. you know, Hezbollah doesn't have a country. Uh, and so I think that we, the, the, the incredible thing, I got to be at the tactical level. And then also I got to be at the strategic level, having sat on the House Armed Services Committee. And just the same in Vietnam, we lose strategically. We don't lose tactically on, on the ground. It's at that level with the policies and everything where we make some really dumb decisions, you know, rules of engagement, not understanding the enemy, their goals and objectives, that, uh, you know, it filters down and we set our warriors up not for success. And I think that's what we have to learn. What do you make of uh, the fact that George H.W. Bush, there's sort of the famous moment where he decided mm -hmm. not to go to Baghdad, not to topple Saddam the yeah. first time around. He was obviously under pressure from more of the neocon types sure. to, to take Saddam out at that point. The irony being that we left Saddam and then we just, his son ended up going in, you know, yeah. 15 years later or so. Um, what was it like to be there when that decision oh, it was, incredible. Was, was made or not made, depending on it which way you want to look at it? Yeah, because I was in the 1st Infantry Division, <clears throat> and we were the ones that had secured Safwan Airfield for the peace negotiation talks to come in. And we just sat there that night and said, man, okay, so Major, Lieutenant Colonel, when do you think we'll be back? Because anytime you fight half measure warfare, you have ongoing residual mm -hmm. consequences. I mean, you look at the Korean War, you look at the Vietnam War. The last time we fought a total war was World War II, when we wanted the enemy to capitulate. I mean, they, they signed a document of surrender. Uh, we don't have that today. So you, you believe in the Powell Doctrine, basically, that well, if you're going to do it, you just... you got to do it right. Absolutely. A absolutely. And, and that's what Karl von Clausewitz talked about. He said, war is about imposing your will upon another. Uh, you just don't, don't do half will. Now, with Desert Shield, Desert Storm, we would have lost credibility, though if we had continued on, mm -hmm. but I think that we did not do a good job of degradating the complete capacity and capability militarily of Saddam Hussein, because we had two, uh, the Republican Guard divisions just right ahead of us. We could have taken those guys out and uh, maybe brought him to an even uh, better position at the table. But do, do you think the military brass wanted to? 
I don't know if they were at least the people to. there. I, I think I think the thing is we kind of felt we didn't seal the deal, and mm. we kind of knew that eventually we'd come back. But even mm. more so, um, we could have done better with the Kurds. I really feel that we continue to kind of you know backslap the Kurds when they are so pro-American and and they so want to be an ally of ours. And and what we have done with ISIS. Couldn't have done without the Kurds. Yeah, is that just one of those situations where Iraq really is three countries? Yeah, and it's like, all right, we could. I suppose we could impose some sort of partition mm-hmm. and give the Kurds what they justly deserve. Mm-hmm. That then will probably make Turkey rain hell on them and well, a whole bunch of other things. Well, you know, well, Turkey is not exactly our friends on Erdogan. But yeah. if you go back post World War One, the Sykes-Picot Treaty, when the great powers of England and France went in, they just divided the Middle East up. Arbitrarily, just yeah. the same as you saw in Africa. You know, they didn't pay attention to tribal allegiances or what have you. They created artificial nations. The lines actually look ridiculous. They if you, are if you ridiculous. really look at them, they, yeah. the shapes and all of yeah. these things are. are so just I insane. think that there is an opportunity now for us to maybe look at how can the Middle East be restructured. I mean, the Kurds are the nation's largest ethnic group without a homeland. And, and I think that they have suffered, you know, from increased uh, persecution. I think that they could be more friendly to, you know, the Assyrian Christians, the Chaldeans, who are also persecuted. Uh, and so I think that that's where, you, you know, we don't do uh, str- strategy in long terms. We do strategy in election cycles, Dave. Yeah. And, and you can't win. That, that's just the part of this that probably never changes. That it, almost screws yeah. up everything. And it yeah. does screw up everything. Because yeah. you can't win against people that are thinking in 50 and 100 years cycles. Support for the Rubin Report comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home is so much more than a house. It's your own little slice of heaven. That's why when you find the perfect place for you and your family, getting a mortgage shouldn't get in the way. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team by your side through every step of the mortgage process. It's awesome and exactly what you get with Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Their team of mortgage experts is obsessed with finding a better way, which means that their number one goal is to make the home buying process smoother for you. Quicken Loans has helped millions of Americans achieve their dream of home ownership, and when you're ready to purchase the home of your dreams, they can help you too. Their team cares about getting you home. That's why J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination nine years in a row and highest in mortgage servicing five years in a row. When you work with them, you get more than just a loan because Rocket Mortgage is more than just a lender. Get started online at rocketmortgage.com slash Rubin, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. For J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage. Now back to the show. So so with all that in mind, if we look at Afghanistan today, and now you're saying some of the rules of engagement have changed, we're doing things a little more effectively, how do we eventually not be in Afghanistan. Is, is there any road that you can see to getting us there, Doug? I, I don't think there's any successful road. It's a complete, full withdrawal. I think I think we need. We probably will maintain a base there, maybe Brooklyn base, and and continue to support in a, this advisory role. I tell you. So I, I have to say this: my capacity in Afghanistan was much different than the conventional troop. I was a I was a force recon marine. I, I had the unique opportunity to try out for a JSOC, a Joint Special Operations Command Task Force. And so the capacity I worked in was, I didn't live on a base, I lived out with the Afghan people. I was embedded with the Afghan people and you know, wore civilian clothes. And, and so I, I lived in their homes and wow. ate dinner with their families and, and played soccer what with did their they, kids. What did they think about you guys? Well, 
they that's that this is the point they they love the fact that America was there because they had been truly oppressed by the Taliban and and uh, and so I got a first when I first went I was I deployed like every other war, warrior after 9-11 we were going there to right the wrongs of 9-11 that's a very patriotic cause that's what would motivated us but very quickly I went from that to understanding what these people had endured from the Taliban to see their hurt and their pain and their the, what the what the Taliban had done to the women and the, and the the little kids little boys and little girls and and, and seeing this and hearing about stories and understanding this, it really turned my heart from this patriotic sense of retaliate for 9-11 to these people are oppressed and we need to be there that, to help mm -hmm. these people. And this is where I'm torn today because I still have a heart for these people. I mean, I, I lost Afghan brothers like uh, in combat that, uh, and so I still have a heart for these people and, and couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine, I, I was there for the 2004 uh, election. I remember sitting in the living room Everyone's like a Super Bowl party. Everyone's tuned in TV because John Kerry and, and Bush is, is, is up. And everyone, these guys, these, these people are having this food everywhere. They're having this giant party. I've never seen anything like no one in the United States excited for a presidential election like this was. And, uh, and when Bush won, they were so excited because they were so terrified that if Kerry won, he would withdraw the U.S. troops and what would happen to them. Mm -hmm. he, they know, they know what will happen to them if we leave. And, uh, and so it really changed my perspective on being there. Um, again, as a father now, and with a, um, it, I'm like, does my son belong there? It made me mm -hmm. ask these questions all over again. But I, I do believe that we don't belong there in, in a in a in a conventional capacity. But as a as a support and advisory role, I do believe we still belong. So, there. so with that in mind, what yeah. is a sound policy then? <clears throat> what what mm -hmm. is a sound foreign policy that you you can do some good? You can try yes. to build the. Uh, not nation build per yeah, se, but I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. but but try to set the seeds yes. of democracy and freedom, yeah. which we were doing in Iraq, which we're we're doing in Afghanistan. Yeah. But make sure that we don't become the imperial empire no, that is there to, forever. We and don't creates. want to be mired down. So so what do you think, just broadly, because we're sort of talking about this at a, at a personal level from your perspective? What yeah. do you think broadly, just a sane foreign policy looks well, like? Well, that's the key thing. It, it should not be about nation building. It should be about you know strike operations. It is about having a force that is able to make sure that these uh, Islamic jihadists are not able to have a defined sanctuary, a base of operations. And what we have been doing up to this point, Dave, we've been playing whack-a-mole. And you can't win playing whack-a-mole. So what we need to be able to do is, instead of having this massive forward-deployed military, you have a power projection platform. Uh, and so you have, you know, a Bagram, you have a base, you know, somewhere close in Iraq where you can launch troops very quickly and you have a strike operation, you hit a critical capability capacity of the enemy, and, you know, then you pull back. But you stay in that very basic region to let them know that we can quickly respond uh, once again. And that's what you just saw when we brought in the, the carrier group into, uh, into the, uh, the Persian Gulf area uh, to stand up against Iran, to say that we do have a credible military deterrent. So your foreign policy is worthless unless you have that deterrent. And, and they teach you in staff college where about the four elements of military, I mean, national power, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. And I think that what we have to do is continue to use the diplomatic, the informational, the economic means first and foremost. But we have to show that, you know, if push comes to shove, we, we can do this mm -hmm. uh, if, if you're not willing to so with that in mind, do you, do you regard the Obama red line in Syria as just 
like the biggest the biggest blunder yeah. of their years because I remember I, I was a lefty at the time. You can watch videos of me on the Young Turks. I was saying we should not be there. Yeah. I was saying I don't. They've got to take care of it, or the the regional actors mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. to take care of it. Let Turkey help some of these people. Like I did not want anything to do with it. I was yeah. completely anti-war. But then once Obama said the red line thing. I was like, all right, well, if you if you've set the deal yes, here, right. then you have to follow through. Do you, do you view that as just, I don't know, has there been a worse blunder? Of let's say just a policy. Well, you lose all credibility whatsoever, uh, and then people see you as a joke. I mean, when you come out and you say ISIS is just a JV team, then you know you're saying that I'm dismissing this thing. When you deal with someone like Kim Jong Un saying we're going to have strategic patience, well, the guy keeps shooting off rockets and missiles and everything like that. So you know. Compromise, appeasement, negotiation, things like that. You know, there are people in the world that only understand strength and might. And, and yeah. Chad and I, we, we've seen those type of people. We understand that. Anything else is deemed as weakness. So when you draw a red line, then all of a sudden you say, well, it wasn't really my red line. It was everybody else's red line. You know, leaders take responsibility. And, and that's what, you know, you fail to see then. Now we have someone that has come in. He's saying, okay, rules of engagement got to change. You generals, you go in, you take care of it, you do what has to be done. We don't hear about ISIS. Mm-hmm. Now, they still exist as an ideological enemy, but they don't have a territorial integrity. You know, you have China that is now saying, you know, what is going on here? I mean, we just had the run of the mill for all of these years, Republican or Democrat president. Now something has changed. North Korea, the same thing. Even Russia is starting to be concerned. So I think that's the important thing is, uh, you know, you have to be able to come out with that stick uh, when, when it is required, when it is necessary. And if you create a void, like President Obama did in Iraq, someone's gonna fill that void. That's a law of physics. So I think we got some hints as to <laughs> what Colonel West thinks about Trump's policy, uh, yeah. you know, foreign policy. What, yeah. what do you think? Well, I think, you know, all, all four areas that you're talking about, particularly in the economic sanctions right now, I mean, a lot of people, are, you know, continue to every time the president says something that he's going to impose these impose tariffs or, or do economic sanctions, people laugh and mock him. But uh, it turns around weeks later, you know. But then Mexico. Again. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think he keeps... Uh, Pushing these these things, uh, both military military strategy, diplomacy, and, and ec- economic, and and you're seeing him win in these areas, and uh, you know it's becoming hard to doubt the president. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think about his decision making abilities when it comes to selecting certain people? So I remember, like when Bolton got put in, yeah. it was like, all right, now Trump's going all neocon, and the the base, which was very anti-war, was very pissed. And I remember sort of thinking, well, it's like, that doesn't mean you're going neocon because you no. bring a guy like him around. It actually means you're bringing somebody around that is known as a threat. And yeah. that yeah. kind of keeps the enemies going, we don't, and then you have Trump who says anything. <laughs> so it's kind of like, wait a minute, the combo here is a guy who we think likes war yeah. or who does like war, let's say, or however you want to phrase that, plus a guy like Trump who says whatever he wants. Now we don't know how to react, basically. And that is the thing. Uh, no one understands that decision cycle. So people are completely off base. They don't know what is going to come out, you know, in the morning. They're sitting around and saying, okay, what is he going to tweet now? And in the Marine Corps, because I did three years on exchange with the Marines, they call it the OODA loop. And what you want to do is to be able to get inside the enemy's decision cycle, and you want to completely throw them off, off their, their game. And that's what President Trump has done. You know, you're not. You think he really gets that at a at a military level, or is that just that that, that, that thing that he gets? Yeah, it's just a thing. I mean, I don't know if it's a New York thing. It might be. Well, I think it's sort of. I always say it's sort of like he's just kind of. And I don't even mean this. I don't even truly don't even mean this 
negatively necessarily, but he's kind of just a crooked New York businessman. But you got to do a lot of stuff within you that. Do a lot of stuff. Yeah. You got to do a lot of stuff within that to make things happen because the mm-hmm. whole system is out of whack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And see. A normal politician is going to follow what everyone says. Okay, you got to do X, you got to do Y, you got to do Z. I mean, they got this set battle scheme or whatever. And he just has completely thrown that playbook out. And folks aren't used to that. He is not predictable. And really, on the battlefield, you don't want to be predictable. And this is a battlefield. This is an economic battlefield. It's a diplomatic battlefield. It's a military battlefield. And he is just completely outmaneuvering our major adversaries, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. The world's in a better place because of it right now. Do you, do you think that's empirically true? I mean, if you listen yeah. to the media, it sounds like, you know, yeah, any yeah. moment World War III is going to happen, something's mm-hmm. going down with China, Iran's going to get the bomb, this, that, the other thing. Right. But do you, do you really feel that there's empirical proof that actually things yeah. are safer or more stable? Well, I mean, we, we have, I mean, what's North, North Korea going to do? What's Iran going to do? We, we have no, you know, we no way to predict what they're going to do, but I think the actions that the president and the administration has has proven that they uh, they are responding uh, to, I mean, North Korea has responded in a way that, you know, we never thought they would respond uh, to, to, with the relations to the United States. Iran uh, has backed down. Uh, Mexico, who's, you know, really taken advantage of uh, the United States over for many, many years, is finally uh, coming around. I mean, these, these things may seem extreme because people aren't used to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but I think they're, uh, I believe the world is a better, in a better place right now. Yeah, think, what do you, think, of, think about this, Dave. The president said, I do not want to see people dropping bombs on innocent women and children. <laughs> and he bombed Syria. Mm-hmm. Now, from a tactical level, you know, you look at the battle, battle damage assessment, it, it was not really a big thing. But the fact that he took the action, that was the, the, the most important thing. I mean, when Iran starts to maybe do a little saber rattling, he doesn't, you know, get back on his heels. He says, send a carrier battle group and, and, and let's show them that, you know, we'll go toe to toe. You're not going to see sailors on a riverine assault boat on their knees at gunpoint mm. because of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Navy. That ain't happening. Right, which we saw. Which we saw. Yeah. And every American, you talked about the flag, every American should have been incensed that we had sailors who surrendered instead of fought and were on their knees at gunpoint to the Iranians. Yeah. Well, that must be why Trump wanted, what, within two months of being elected, he dropped that mother of all bombs and people were like, oh, now he's, he's going all war hawk. No. But your, your argument would be he did it because it's like you show a little bit of erratic behavior. You but you show strength, too. And that keeps these guys on their heels. Yeah. What do you guys make of our... Uh, alliances and the way they've really sort of shifted over the last five years, let's say, and just what's going on with NATO and the United Nations. I mean, Trump has basically obliterated the United Nations. Um, NATO is shifting. And that more than that, that if we don't do anything, nobody does anything. Mm-hmm. And that, that is the sort of bargain that the United States is in that's, that's very difficult. Do you think that's a fair thing to say? If we don't yeah. do anything internationally, no one does anything. Well, NATO sure sure isn't. I mean, uh, I mean, the UN has you know proven to be, I think, exposed at this point as their willingness. And so, yeah, I mean, America has had to step up and fill the gap. But I, I think also the president has uh, kind of exposed that that we everyone needs to come to the table and, and contribute. And uh, you know, he's really he's really uh, called them out at the mm-hmm. at the UN summit. I think it was a UN summit mm-hmm. where he really exposed them on this. And so, yeah, but I, I do believe that there's, America does have a responsibility to fill the gap. I don't believe we're in, in nation building and, and uh, handle every problem, you know, be a firefighter for every fire in the world. 
but I do believe we have a responsibility as the, as the strongest nation in the world. Yeah. Why, why don't other countries step up? It doesn't seem like anyone steps up anymore. Like because, they all say they like to hate us yeah. and then they ask us for help and then yeah. sometimes we overstep the line and now it gets worse. I mean, there's this crazy bargain always happening. Because we've been that security blanket for them for so long. Mm -hmm. You know, my first tour of duty was over in Europe and, you know, I was part of a NATO unit that, and when you looked at, you know, the other airborne units were part of that NATO unit, you just kind of scratch your head. Like, you know, dudes, what are y'all doing? Do y'all even train? I mean, you can't hit the, you know, the broad side of a bar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but these collective body politics, United Nations, European Union, I think they're being rejected. And now when you look at these security organizations like NATO, President Trump has gone in and said, hey, guys, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. When he called out Angela Merkel for having a deal with Russia uh, for natural gas, and now you're asking me to protect you from Russia, but yet you're doing economic deals with Russia. Come on. Does that make sense? And furthermore, you're not owning up to your 2% responsibility of financing in NATO. I will tell you, when I was in Afghanistan, the biggest problem for the German army was obesity. Because they were just sitting around, they were eating brochin, you know, good sausage and bread and everything. They weren't getting out. They weren't fighting anyone. Uh, in southern Afghanistan, we had the Brits, we had the Canadians, we had the Romanians, and we had the Dutch. And they each had a separate province. And each of them had their own rules of engagement or, you know, orders from the Ministry of Defense. They didn't coordinate within mm. each other. And so the Taliban just easily understood, well, we can do this in, in, in uh, this province because the Dutch are not going to drop bombs on us. They're just going to fly over our heads and, you know, be real loud. So at that point, NATO doesn't have a have a standard operating procedure. If no. You're all doing something They're together doing in one country. Based upon their respective ministries of defense. Everyone knew that the Romanians, the orders for the Romanians, they could not leave the roads. They could not get out of their vehicles. Wow. So, I mean, how are you going to win? Against an enemy, when you have your Ministry of Defense dictating all of these different, you know, is that changing under NATO now? Well, I haven't been back to Afghanistan since yeah. two thousand and eight <laughs> or seven, so I wouldn't know. But I think that you know, maybe when you look at the Georgians, we're going out and doing patrols. Yeah. Maybe it is different. But these major NATO uh, member countries, they're not stepping up. And, and I would even begin to question why we have Turkey and NATO, because Erdogan is not a friend to Western civilization. Yeah. But the other countries are stepping up because of what you said. I mean, as the U.S. comes back and moves to that um, support and advisory capacity, then they have to they have to do their part. I mean, this is a you know, strong presidential administration saying that, hey, you guys are going to do your role. We're not going to go out there and do all these combat patrols, send our American warriors to do all these combat patrols while you sit back on the base. Uh, this has been the strategy and the shift of the military and the administration. Yeah. And you see a big surge in the special operations community and that support uh, and advisory role, too. So let's let's shift to veterans because yes. I think that that's what brings you guys really mm -hmm. together. I think. How, how, how did you guys meet, by the way? Was it was it through the nonprofit? How did you meet? How did uh, we meet? Was it, <laughs> heck, I don't know. I don't man. know. I, I think you needed some army friends. And yeah. You just kind of you know, call me up. No. We, yeah. we just <laughs> the same, we're in the same circles of yeah. people, and uh, we have mutual friends, and we both have. Uh, a very, I mean, obviously we're both patriots and love our warriors, and and after, outside of uniform, we're both still serving, and uh, we're you know kinder kinder heart, hearts to do this mission. Yeah. So you started so, Mighty Mighty Oaks. I did. I did. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? And, and and Colonel West sits on the board. Yeah, maybe it's 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 hard to really tell you without sharing a little bit of my story. Um, you know, I, after my eighth deployment to Afghanistan, I was diagnosed with post traumatic stress uh, disorder. Um, to give you kind of how that started, for me it started with a uh, 
you know, just coming home and being frustrated, angry. Um, I have a wife and three, I've been married for 24 years and, and three amazing ch children and, um, and they really endured me coming home and just being a tyrant to them. Um, you know, lots of verbal abuse and never physical abuse, but throwing things, breaking things, just acting like a uh, lunatic around my house. Yeah. Did you know something was wrong with you? Or were you yeah. even aware of it enough? I was. I, I tell you when the first, like, I was, that anger intensity worked really well in Afghanistan. Um, like I said, the, the Afghans that I worked with, they hated the Taliban. The task force I was on was a, had a Viking kind of war culture mindset. And so it worked really well in Afghanistan. But 24 hours later when I'd be home, wife and children, it didn't work well there. I couldn't like flip a switch and turn it off. So I recognized that, but it was a moment that I came home from, my, from Afghanistan. I made it home for my daughter's birthday. She was so excited I was gonna be there. And I remember uh, she's very opinionated, she still is. And she, she didn't like the icing on her cake. And just saying that, like I flipped out and I grabbed my little girl's birthday cake and picked it up and threw it against the wall and wow. destroyed my little girl's birthday. And I remember in that moment thinking like, what kind of person does, what kind of dad does something like that? And, uh, and that was one example, but at that moment, I, I realized I had to just back off. Instead of fixing the behavior, I just kind of distanced myself. And so between these eight deployments, I would just stay busy at schools and training and workups uh, and just stayed busy and isolated myself from them. And over time, that anger started turning to anxiety. I started having these uh, physiological symptoms. My arms would go numb, my face would go numb. I'd feel like my throat was swelling shut. Sometimes I felt like I had like a thousand pounds on my chest. And mm -hmm. I started researching what the, this was and uh, learned it was panic attacks. And, but I didn't want to say anything to the guys I worked with in this little special, special operations group. I figured the guys would think I was weak. Maybe I'd lose my clearance. And so I didn't, I didn't uh, speak up. I tried to push it down and do my job. And eventually those symptoms got much worse. I actually started having these moments where I almost felt like a detached, like out-of-body experience. Wow. I wake up by these fogs and realize I didn't remember the last few weeks, and so I had to speak up and say something because I wasn't only putting myself in danger, but I was putting other people in danger as well. And so that's when I was brought home, and I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, that began—that wasn't my rock bottom, but that began a very downward spiral in my life. Um, my wife and my psychologist and uh, were trying to help me move forward and I was in such a state of, the only way I really know how to describe like the state of panic that I was in, uh, I just recently kind of came up with words for it. It's like if you were, like ankle was handcuffed to the bottom of a pool drain and you mm. had like a, like the surface was a, about a foot above your head and you had just how desperate you would be for one breath of air, uh, but you never drown, you never die. Like that's how I was like 24 seven. And on top of that panic, I felt totally ashamed because I was so proud of the job I was doing and my whole identity was wrapped in that job and now it was gone. And so uh, my wife and my counselor were trying to find something for me to do, and that's where the MMA and jiu-jitsu came in. I'd say I did it since I was little, but I'm still little. Yeah. I, I, did it since I, was, I did it since I was five years old. And, wow. And so I was already a professional fighter, so I dove into that and just invested my time in that, and I had a, a great deal of success. I was, ended up being 18-2 and two as a pro fighter. I won a world title belt from yeah. Leg Legacy FC and, uh, and fought in strike force and all these shows. But really what I did was I never got well. I found something to hide in, like somebody would just climb in a bottle of alcohol or drugs. Uh, for me, that's where I just just made myself occupied. And so eventually... Uh, Do you think that's where most people are at when they start getting into MMA? Because as you know, obviously, yeah. it's absolutely blowing up and, and Joe Rogan's yeah. talking to all the fighters all yeah. the time. And there really seems to be this, this thing about getting your shit together, that that seems to be the beginning point. What's well, a disciplined lifestyle. You have yeah. to be disciplined. Like everything around... I mean, I'm competing. I was telling Alan West today, he's like, you still compete? I'm like, I compete in jiu-jitsu tournaments. I'm doing the world's uh, world championships in August. And the reason why is because 
it helps me regiment my life. Like it's, it's something I put a date on the calendar and everything in my life becomes disciplined. The way my family life is, the way I eat, the way I sleep, uh, it brings some, reg the way I manage my schedule uh, for traveling and speaking, everything becomes regimented. So I try to compete like twice a year for that. Do you ever wonder where your family comes from? I do, and that's why I was so excited to get my results back from Ancestry DNA. I've just seen the naturalization card from my great-great-grandfather, Jacob Littman, who immigrated to America in 1891 and worked as a shoe merchant in New York. Ancestry DNA combines DNA results with over 100 million family trees and billions of records to give you more insight into your family's story, like where your ancestors lived, where they worked, even how long they attended school. Ancestry DNA has amassed the most diverse DNA collection on Earth so they can compare your DNA to people all over the world. I'm so glad I took the test and I can't wait to share more of my story with you. Connect with your family history and get your story started. Go to Ancestry.com slash Ruben today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash Ruben for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash Ruben. Now back to the show. When you live in the, the lifestyle of a professional fighter and competing at that very high level like I competed at, it really helped me manage my life. And my life was, you know, I was still dealing with panic attacks. I was still angry. I was still, um, my life was still kind of in disarray. And, um, and my, my marriage really began to deteriorate because I wasn't addressing the problem. And so eventually uh, I ended up in an affair. I didn't care. Me, me and my wife, uh, I, I was so callous at that point. Mm. And so what we, we sat our kids down and said we were getting divorced. In fact, my wife filed for divorce. Um, we sold our home, moved in two separate apartments, like signed 12-month leases. And uh, my wife and I had two very different reactions. And my wife went into a church. And uh, I don't mean like on a Sunday. She went like every day, got connected with a group of people. And she said she started praying for me. And uh, at that time, I was probably as far away from God as you could possibly be. And, and, uh, but I asked her now, of course, what was she praying for me at this time? And she just pray, God, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. Let me love Chad the way you love Chad. Let me forgive Chad the way you forgave Chad. And so you have this woman that's like fighting for me. And meanwhile, I'm in this apartment immediately, like I'm separated from this woman I don't have to deal with anymore. I don't have to be responsible for, that, for the problems I was causing anymore. And so I had a big fight on Showtime, uh, Strike Force. And, uh, and that's what I was focused on. And when that fight was over, I ended up winning that fight. But as I won that fight in the Toyota Center, there was like 10,000 people there. And I remember thinking when my hand was raised, like my wife wasn't there. And she'd always been my cheerleader before. And hmm. something about that, I went back to my apartment that night and I started thinking about all the problems I caused, the people I hurt, um, and my family mainly. And I thought, well, I blamed everyone else before. Like I was a common denominator. Like it was, the problem was me. And when I came to this thought, I, I um, this idea came over me that somehow my family would be sad without me, but they would be better off. Now, if you know anything about the veteran suicide rate, that same hopeless thought finds a, a home in the hearts of 20 plus veterans every day. That not, I'm gonna kill myself to escape my pain, but you know, somehow you think that you know, people around me be sad, my family would be sad, my friends would be sad, but they're gonna be better off. And so that decision really uh, seemed like it made sense to me, mm. and I made a decision to take my life. I had, uh, in that apartment, I had all, all my family pictures. I'm ashamed to say, but it's true. I, I had all my family pictures in my closet because you know girls coming over and whatnot. And so I, uh, I would sit in my closet with my, clo I'd shut the door, I'd put my family pictures on the floor and I'd try to build up the courage. I'd put the pistol to my, I had a Glock 22 pistol. I'd put it to my, my head, I'd put it in my mouth, trying to build up the courage. And I don't know to this day if I had the courage to actually pull that trigger because I didn't. Mm. But what did keep me from doing it was my son Hunter, the one that's in Afghanistan right now he had the only key to my apartment. And I knew he'd be the one to either find me or open the door for someone to find me. And that 
kept me from actually doing it. And one morning I called my wife. She says I called. She says I was frantic. I don't really remember the call, but she came to my apartment. And when she came, I was actually in the closet with that pistol, and uh, and she knocked on my door and unwittingly, you know, intervened and saved my life. I remember hiding that pistol under my blanket. Wow. I didn't want her to find it. And and she, I answered the door and we got in this confrontation. And she asked me a question that radically changed my life. She asked me how I could do everything I did in the Marine Corps. She saw me become a recon Marine. Saw me train for these deployments and all these things in Afghanistan and train for MMA fights, cutting weight and all the discipline it takes to do that. She's like, how could you do all of that? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And that question for me to be called a quitter, which is one of those soul cutting words to me, huh. uh, it just uh, impacted me and I knew I had to make a change. So, wow. All right. There, there's a lot there. So, well, first off, thank you for being so upfront about the personal stuff, because I know yeah. that's not easy for anybody. Um, so before we get to Mighty Oaks, then, I'm sure you have heard many, many stories that are like that. Mm -hmm. Did you ever experience anything along those lines? Did you ever go down that path personally? No, me personally, uh, you know, I, I, it was just different for me. Um, I have a very supportive wife who, her dad was career military also, did 24 years in the Army uh, in Vietnam, two tours, and he's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. So we always tried to have that very strong support. And as a battalion commander, I remember when, before we went to Iraq, you know, I tried to tell the soldiers that the person that you are here, when you put that first step on those stairs to go into that airplane, you got to leave that person here. And the person that you are over there, somehow you've got to leave that person over there. And I think that that's what the struggle is mm -hmm. for our warriors, to be able to, to make that switch. Um, it's not saying that you're, you're cold and callous to be able to do it, but you just understand what's required of you. You know, your nation is calling you to be a certain person, but your family is also calling you, calling you to be a certain person. And, I, and that's what veterans and that's what our military men and women are struggling with because we put them in these very intense combat situations and then we extricate them from them and we put them back into the family. And I don't think we do a really good job of the decompression time mm. over there before they come back home. I think that you need a good two to three weeks before, you know, as you're coming out of those combat zones of operation before you come home. And it's important that they talk to each other. We don't, we don't allow that to do, happen. Do we do none of that? I mean, well, well, well we traveling across the world takes some time, but yeah. you, you mean some like real time I mean, real time somewhere. over there and, and, you know, instead of rushing, we gotta get them back home. You know, we gotta get all the equipment loaded up and get them back home. Take the time, a couple of weeks, to just let guys sit around and talk and, and get that opportunity to leave that person over there and start mentally preparing themselves to go back because a lot has changed. In your yeah. families, you've been gone. You know your wife, your kids. They've continued on with their lives. You, you're kind of the one that's coming back in, and you, yeah. you're kind of the guest. Yeah. And you've got to, you know, you know, reaccustom yourself. It's got to be a huge catch twenty two though, because in their minds, they're yes. all going, "I want to get home tomorrow." Yes, get me oh, home. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think that in the long run, it would be so beneficial. You know, I remember. I did a year in Korea in 1995, and my daughter, my oldest daughter, when I left, I think she was a little over a year. And, you know, that was the day before Skype and everything yeah. like that, and right. so you're sharing VHS tapes and what have you. But when I got back from Korea, you know, she was there, and she looked at me, and she was like, I think I know who you are, <laughs> but I'm not really sure who you are. And so it was all about redeveloping that relationship. You know, taking her out, you know, daddy-daughter time, just, just whatever. 
And then finally she realized, okay, this is a guy I've been seeing, you know, on those videotapes. Yeah, he's my dad. He's not leaving. He's not going anywhere. So I think it's important that we allow our guys to have that time. But we are putting them in such a constant deployment cycle. And that's why I get so upset about how we have reduced the, uh, the, the strength of our military because we're running these warriors, we're running their families into the ground. And that's why Mighty Oaks is so important. Yeah, so yeah. you handed me the segue. Talk, <laughs> talk to me about why you started Mighty Oaks. Well, uh, in, that, in that reaction to my wife's question, you know, why would I not fight for my, my family and my own life? Um, I had to respond to that, and, I, and, I, and through that response, I found the solution that many of us face, not just me. Um, we, we, I knew I couldn't make those changes by myself. I knew I needed help, and so I asked my wife, was there someone at this church she was going to? Because uh, I, I knew I couldn't do it with the people around me as well. I had some great friends, but there were more people that were telling me what I wanted to hear, not what I needed to hear. And so I met a man named Steve Toth, and Steve is a Texas state legislator now. Yeah. And uh, at the time, he was an elder at the work church my, my wife was going to and a small business owner. And we met at a Starbucks coffee shop in him, and I had the perfect plan of how I was going to fix my life. I'd, it was really, I was probably slid it over to him really smug, <laughs> and he put it, his hand on it, slid it right back over to me and told me I was going to fail. And I remember being like initially really offended because I'm like, this is pretty good. And really what I was trying to do was manipulate him to say, take this plan, show it to my wife because I'm trying to fix things. Mm-hmm. And he tapped on that paper and he said, if this thing doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, I'm not going to waste your time, and I'm not going to let you waste mine. And uh, I know... A lot of people uh, may not agree with uh, with my faith or what I believe, but I'll tell you this: I had tried everything. Mm-hmm. I had tried. I'd been through. The, I'd been through all the counseling, all the the programs. I'd been on the pills. I had tried uh, professional success. I had been successful financially and and uh, in, in my career as an athlete and as an instructor. I had a thousand students in my school that I was teaching, and so I had been. I had I tried all those things and nothing had worked. And so it was time for me to try something different. We have a saying at Mighty Oaks: If what you're doing isn't working. Then why not try something different? And so I trusted this man, Steve. I surrendered my life to God uh, through his leadership and his mentorship, and things in my life start to radically change. I, uh, I found a restoration, a hope. Uh, for the uh, first time, I had hope in a very long time. And I found ultimately what, um, what I've been searching for the whole time in my whole life, and that's purpose. And that purpose was to share what I discovered with other people. And uh, that was how Mighty Oaks began. Uh, through that process, I, I learned something really important. Um, that and it sounds so simple, but to me it's so, it was so profound that all these things that had happened to me, my childhood, Afghanistan, losing one of my best friends, Foster Harrington, we served together for 10 years when he was killed and on our f- first deployments. Um, all these things that had happened to me didn't lead me to be in that closet with my pistol in my hand. What led me there were the choices I made in response to those things. And I still had control of that. I still had the control of the ability to choose differently. And as cliche as it may sound, I didn't have to let my past define my future. Right. I could choose a different future moving forward. And in doing that, um, part of that future I chose moving forward was to take what I discovered and share it with others. Uh, it was like if I was dying of cancer and this guy Steve gave me the cure, I had to share it. I felt obligated uh, to share it. And so that's how we started Mighty Oaks. Um, we weren't ready at the time. My wife and I were still bleeding as a family trying to heal, but we both felt passionate to do this, this mission. And I'm so thankful we did. Um, I mean, to date, I've spoken to over 100,000 active duty troops at bases around the world by request to share a message on, on resiliency. I go to Marine Corps boot camp. The Marine Corps allows me to speak at Marine Corps boot camp uh, to these young warriors about resiliency and spiritual resiliency. And we run a program program called a legacy program. It's our recovery program. We have four ranches in a uh, California, Ohio, Virginia, and Texas, and we pay for everything, uh, travel, 
flights, uh, all the program is totally free. Active duty uh, veterans and spouses come to these programs. We do 30 camps per year, wow. and uh, we've had 2,600 graduates from those, from those camps. And so it's been, a, it's been absolutely incredible to take what the lessons I've learned and realize that I wasn't the only one, I wasn't alone. 22 veterans every day were taking their lives at the same time I was going through this. Divorce rates in some bases are up to 80% for combat veterans. Like uh, a lot of people having the same issues I had. I had the solution. Um, and, now, and now we, we have this most amazing team, people like Colonel West on our on a board and uh, General Boykin. And we have a Sergeant Major Marine Corps, Sergeant Major Kent, who's a great friend of both of ours, yeah. uh, outshot us both. <laughs> By one shot. By one shot. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we uh, just have the most amazing team and staff to, to serve these warriors. We have, uh, I think, 14 full-time staff members and about 40 instructors that are all combat veterans that serve as instructors at these programs. Yeah. This is absolutely incredible. There's so much there. So it's really interesting to me that you said you tried everything else and, and faith is what worked for you. Now, yes. I assume that as a man of faith, you hear something like that, mm -hmm. that doesn't surprise you. No, it doesn't. It, it absolutely doesn't. And, and I think that, you know, in the Bible, it, it says that you can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. And, and that's the message we need to get out there. You and I were talking earlier about, you know, the victim mentality. And I always tell people, you got two choices in life. You either be a victim or you be a victor. Uh, and that's why I hate progressive socialism, <laughs> because it tells people they're going to be victims. And that's not what America's about. And even more so, Dave, when you look at what is happening with our young people in the United States of America right now, the suicide rate, it's because they're searching for something. And, and they're out there trying everything. They're on the internet, they're on the social media, they're playing the video games, they, they wanna be cool, the drugs, and, and everything that the world says that you can have to, to make you accept it. But there's just one thing that can really feel that emptiness in, in your heart. And I think, you know, we talked about an awakening in this country. I also see a faith awakening in this country as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, you guys probably know I've been on tour with Jordan Peterson for the last year and a half or so. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's not trying to sell religion on anyone particularly, but he is trying to show the power of religious stories and meaning, mm -hmm. the meaning and all, all of the things that I think you're talking about. And I do see a, a rebirth of that. Yeah. And it's been, well, I've actually seen it all over the world because yeah. we traveled all over the world. And it's pretty fascinating to, to see firsthand yeah. because it's not what the media shows you. And he, you know, he's moved me not. on this. You can't be around that for a year, year and a half and, yeah. and not be moved personally on that. Well, that's one of the things, you know, leftism is about secular humanism because they don't want you to believe that you can have faith and hope in something other than the government. And when you look at what you know, our founders created, when you look and read John Locke's second treatise on government, natural rights theory, your inalienable rights are not dictated to you by man. It comes from a creator. Life, liberty, They can and take them from you, but they, they didn't give them to you. They can take them from you, but they didn't give them to you. And, and that's the thing that we have to come to understand. And that's why you see this drive to, to move you know, faith out of the, the, the mainstream in the United States of America. Because they don't want people to understand that, you know, I don't have to wait for you to give it to me. Okay, it's already been given to me. You know, I have the ability to pursue my happiness. Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Spartacus, all you guys, you guys can't, you know, you can't guarantee happiness for me. And I think that's what Chad is saying. He went to all of these other things to try to fill that hole in his life. And then Steve Toth told him that, here, here's the answer. I got the Spartacus reference there. <laughs> that, that didn't get by me. That didn't get by me. And you see, um, I mean, there's, there's hope on this because 
those people that are coming to us, uh, half of those people in active duty military orders coming being sent from the military, they don't agree with the fact that we're a faith-based program, mm -hmm. but they're looking for solutions. Uh, 15 years ago, uh, the DOD and VA began just pushing clinical programs. We've had, we have uh, 1,100 uh, VA and DOD clinical programs. At the time, the suicide rate was 16 a day. It's only gotten worse. And, and so the military, the VA, the veteran community are looking for answers. And, uh, and faith-based programs like Mighty Oaks have, to, have proven to be successful. We just finished a, finished a three-year uh, longitudinal data, a doctoral study. And uh, I could bore you with the numbers from it, but we did outperform clinical trials in this independent study. I assume there are some secular organizations that are doing very similar things that probably have decent success rates too. Sure. You're just saying that for, for you and for mm -hmm. people that are like-minded that this works for you, but you don't have yeah. any inherent problem with people doing it from a more no, secular no, perspective. I don't. I, I, do be, I do believe that uh, some, of those, some of those things are going to be short-lived. Um, when people go and insp are inspired or, or motivated, uh, inspiration and motivation tend to fade, uh, sustain, faith Faith and faith in a, in a God that created us tends to sustain, uh, and it gives you the resiliency to bounce back. So I, I do believe that personally. Uh, but however, I've seen some other great great programs out there. Uh, I just believe that that when you when people make the decision to align their lives with the lives that we were created to live, they find true resiliency and true strength and, and real hope and real purpose moving forward. And uh, we've seen that firsthand, and thousands of guys. And, and not everyone that comes to our program, or, or matter of fact, about half of the people that come to our program would say they share our faith when they come, but they're looking for something that they hadn't found anywhere else. So th this hour absolutely flew by. So if I was giving you guys each a, a closing statement here, um, how is it that you'd want that average person out there to, to get involved, help, help some of these wounded warriors, help, mm -hmm. help you guys get the mission out there? I think we did a little of it again. Yeah. A little of it here, but, but what would you want people to do? I think it's the most important thing is just don't go up and say thank you for your service. Get to know a veteran. They're veterans. Uh, we should not have homeless and jobless veterans in the United States of America. Uh, and, and if you know a veteran that is out there alone, invite them into your home. Show them the real love that the love that they extended to you that they were going to lay down their life for your freedom. Yeah. That, it's going to be tough to beat that one. <laughs> I'd say, you know, if you are a patriot and you want to be part of a grateful nation, when you are going to meet that veteran and invite him into your home, have a place to point them to. And there's plenty of places out there. Uh, Mighty Oaks uh, Foundation is a place that they can point people to as a resource to help all warriors that are struggling with suicide, uh, divorce, PTSD, all those, all those issues. And we not only a resource, but a free one would cover all the costs to that. So, Free, free tool at your disposal as a grateful nation to serve our warriors. Any warriors listening, our spouses, uh, just you know, visit our website and uh, again, we'll take care of you. And the website is mightyoaksprograms.org. That's right, yep. All right, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thank oh, you, thank, thank you so you, much. Man. And I, I should tell you, considering five years ago, I thought you were a complete nutbag. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, I don't know if this says now more about you or more about me. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, that's the thing, you know. You have to stand strong, and eventually light will overcome. Now you ended the show twice on a, on a solid <laughs> note. Thanks exactly. for watching, everybody.